We, God has blessed us so richly with prayer, and he's left us with his word. This is living and active. So as we listen, let, let the Spirit open our hearts to receive this word. From Genesis chapters 6 through 9. You can follow along up on the screen or if you have your own Bible. So this is chapter 6, starting with verse 5. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he had ever made them and put them on the earth, and it broke his heart. The Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky. And I'm so sorry that I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. And this is the account of Noah and his family. So Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. And God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. So build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die. But I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. So pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal, every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. When everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the boat with all of your family, for among all the people of the earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. Take with you seven pairs, male and female, of each animal I have approved for eating and for sacrifice, and take one pair of each of the others. And also take seven pairs of every kind of bird. There must be a male and a female in each pair to ensure that all life will survive on the earth after the flood. Seven days from now I will make the rains pour down on the earth, and it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights until I've wiped out from the earth all the living things I've created. So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. Noah was now 601 years old. On the first day of the new year, 10 and a half months after the flood began, the floodwaters had almost dried up from the earth. Noah lifted back the covering of the boat and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. Two more months went by and at last the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife, your sons and their wives. Release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, the small animals that scurry along the ground so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. So Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives, they left the boat. And all of the large and small animals and birds came out of the boat, pair by pair. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings, the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, 
Even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood, I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, and he told them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, all the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground, and all of the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that still has the lifeblood in it. And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. Now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants, and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I'm confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all of the living creatures, and never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my bow in the clouds. It is the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds, and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the bow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. Then God said to Noah, Yes, this bow is the sign of the covenant I am confirming with all the creatures on earth. This is the word of the God, the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. I'm going to say it one more time. Good morning, church. Hope everyone is doing well. Um, one of the questions I get asked is why do we read so much scripture? And some of the ones who are asking that question often are the ones who are reading it out loud. They're like, whoa, it's a tough job. Why do I give you so much scripture to read? And I'm just going to be honest with you. One, because we're trying to cover a lot of scripture. Well, that's one of the reasons. We want to cover a lot, especially during this Pentateuch series. That there's a lot to cover in a short amount of time. But two, we believe in the proclamation of scripture in this church. We believe in what the scripture is that is written by God, his holy inspired word written through man, given to us. And we believe in his proclamation and his teaching. And so we believe that if all else, if you come out of this place and all you hear is the scripture read to you, that's good enough. Do you hear me? So we're going to keep on proclaiming scripture and holding high scripture here as we read and read large chunks of scripture. And I was saying every time, it won't be long every time. So those of you who get asked by Danny to be part of the team that reads scripture, they'll be like, whoa, do I always have to read long ones? You don't always have to, but it's a cool ministry. We're in the Pentateuch, and we're, this is, uh, we're in the Pentateuch in our sermon series for this whole season, and it's been a wonderful time. And so I want to start off today by asking a few questions, okay, just see how much knowledge you guys have. How many of each animal did Moses bring on the ark? Two? Sacrifice? None? Why none? Because it wasn't Moses, it was Noah. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Hey, is, is anybody interested in a big boat? Because I know a guy. 
What kind of lighting did Noah have on the ark? Floodlights. <laughs> For all you financial people, do you guys know why Noah was the richest man in the Bible? He floated his stock while the world was in liquidation. All right, this is my favorite one, this is my favorite one, you ready? Noah's son walks into a kosher deli and orders a sandwich. Sorry, said the owner, we don't serve ham. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Guys, as you know, we're in Noah. We're, that's who we're studying today. And Noah comes exactly midway between the genealogies between Adam and Abraham, exactly in the middle point. He's a pivotal figure in primeval history. That is Genesis 1 through 11. That's called primeval history. And the author of Genesis races through the years between Adam and Noah and between Noah and Abraham, but then slows down multiple chapters to devote to the 600th year of Noah. So it's very key. So he's racist. He goes from the genealogies from Abraham to Noah, or not from Abraham, Adam to Noah, then slows down from three chapters, then he goes from Noah to Abraham. So it shows that this is a pivotal point, a turning point in the narrative. And this pivotal story, I'm going to divide up into three different acts for us to learn about today. The first act is the state of man. The second act is storm and judgment. And the third act is God of promise. So I'm going to tell this pivotal story of the story of Noah through these three acts. And I want you guys to, to, to get so much of what the initial author was trying to communicate to his initial audience, Moses to his audience, but also the meta-narrative, the story of redemptive work that God is doing in this passage. Acts, uh, Act 1, the state of man. If you look with me in Genesis chapter 6, you'll see what the state of man has become in this time. Verse 5 says this, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. What I want you to know is first and foremost is that God is not oblivious to sin in the world. Man's rebellion does not go unnoticed. I know sometimes it doesn't feel that way. I know we look at situations like Boko Haram or serial killers or other evils that go unpunished in our world, and we start thinking, why aren't they getting their due? Why isn't God striking that person down? Why is God letting evil run rampant in the world? Something inside of us shouts out for justice and we wonder, does God even notice? And I love this. Moses does some incredible wordplay here. He says, the Lord saw. Where else do we hear this concept? Anybody? I can't hear you, but I'm gonna assume that was right. No. In the beginning. In Genesis 1, it says God saw everything he had made, and it was very good. The Lord saw. He takes a look. He is active in the state of looking, and in this looking in this world, what he sees this time, not that it was good in Genesis 1.31, he looks and sees the wickedness is great on the earth. And notice it's not just actions, it's the heart, the core, the essence is corrupt. John Davis, Old Testament professor, says this, the moral degeneration of man apparent in Genesis 4, illustrated by Cain and his descendant, Lamech, culminates in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 13. As the fallen human race multiplied and expanded, so did evil. Verse 5 almost sounds poetic in its phrasing, doesn't it? Every intent of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil continually. We see this empathetic, uh, em 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 emphatic statement of the wickedness of the human heart. 
Paul too tells us that there's no good thing in the human heart which is not made new in Jesus. And this is not just a picture of broken down society, it's a picture of the potential in our own hearts, in the hearts of man. And Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter one, all the way through Romans chapter two. God sees our hearts. And that's one thing we can learn from this passage. There is no escaping and accounting for what we think and for our actions. Now, something very interesting that is said here, something that jumps out at me is said in verse 6. We're told that the Lord is sorry that he had made man on earth. Is that weird? Right? And it's a hard thing. It's a hard element of this passage. We're told that the Lord is almost surprised. We're told the Lord's repented. He's sorrowful for making man. We're told that not only is he sorrowful, he's experiencing grief. We're told of his sorrow. So now this is kind of an anthropomorphism, or more specifically, anthropopathism. And that's a description of human emotion to God. And this passage is used in order to emphasize the strength of God's disgust for man's sin. It doesn't mean that God changed his mind. It doesn't mean that God was caught off guard. It doesn't mean that God's like, oops, wish I didn't do that. It doesn't mean he made a mistake, he wish he didn't make it. It indicates God's disgust for sin. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the writers of the Old Testament are emphatic that God does not change his mind, that he doesn't make mistakes, and he's completely sovereign. He's not repentant over making humans. So how do we know this? How, we, how can we interpret it in this way rather than interpreting it in the other way? Well, if you look in Samuel chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to, you can turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And there, Samuel has been told by the Lord to bring judgment against Saul. And in Samuel 15, you can look at the way at the end of the chapter in verse 35. We'll see the language that we find also in Genesis chapter 6. It says, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of death. For Samuel grieved over Saul. And then we're told, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Now, if you only had that verse and you only had Genesis 6, 6, you might be tempted to think the Lord actually made a mistake in making Saul king. But if you look back in Samuel 15, verse 29, this is the words out of Samuel's mouth. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. See, this type of thinking, this realization the Old Testament prophets is not just unique to Samuel. It's over and over again in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and elsewhere. You know, they, it emphasizes that the Lord doesn't change his mind. The Lord doesn't regret the decisions that he's made. So the language of the Lord was sorry is language intended to make emphatic how God relates and responds to sin. See, the, one of the key things you need to understand about the Hebrew language that was written, it's very different from the language as we understand it. I saw a study the other day, I don't know how exactly accurate, but something pretty close to this, that in the Old Testament, there's over a million English words used in the Old Testament. A million different English words used in the Old Testament. Do you know how many Hebrew words are used? I'm throw a guess out there. A million English words. Ten, exactly 10,000, yeah. Did I tell you this story? Are you cheating? No. <laughs> there are 10,000 Hebrew words, and there's a, a million English words. The Hebrew language is often used in a picturesque way. The language is used to give pictures versus kind of tell something descriptive. So, for example, if you ask somebody during that time period and says, describe God, what would you say? We'd say stuff like holy, righteous, glorious, powerful. What people back then would have said, they would have said shepherd. There's a, a language, there's a picture, there's a, a picture play in the wording they would use. Because when they say shepherd, it signifies all these things, caretaker, provider, uh, nurturer, protector. 
It, it, they use language that's very different. So what they're using in this language, what's communicating is God is disgusted and hates sin. It breaks his heart. The language shouldn't be played down. Language ought to emphasize how much God hates sin. It indicates something of this divine emotional life that exists in some ways. I mean, it's almost correlated to us is that God is actually an emotional God. He has emotions. And we can say that because we're made in his image and we're created to feel passionately. He loves passionately. He's jealous for us passionately. His emotional life is not fickle like ours, though. It's not reactionary like ours because he cannot act against his will. So this language is in reference to the Lord. Now, the Lord's judgment that comes following in Genesis 6, 6, his judgment has been hinted at in verse 3. But his mercy provides a time for repentance. He promises to blot out all living creatures on earth because that's his emotional response to sin. Now, he promises to blot out, but this is a tough passage for us. Can I be honest? This is why I started with jokes in the beginning. This is what why I started with something funny, because this is a difficult passage of scripture, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but this is, when I think of Noah, most of the time I think of like flanographs and children's stories, right? You think of like, oh, two animals, oh, look how cute the animals are marching in. Well, for me, I like to think of the jokes of like unicorns and T-Rexes mixed in the boat. These are the jokes I like to think of. But in reality, Noah's story is a story of judgment. And we don't like to be judged, do we? And we don't want to hear about judgment, do we? It's a difficult concept, any way you look at it. It is a hard pill to swallow. And it, honestly, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. It's a very clear problem that man is a problem here, though. And until we own that the problem is us and we're corrupted by sin, we don't want to tone down the language here. There's a universal judgment that comes. God hates sin. He hates it. And can I just say this? This is an aside. Thank God that he does. Because if God was okay with sin, I don't know, what I would, I don't know how I would handle looking at the world and seeing what was broken and wrong with it and saying God was okay with that. I thank God that he judges sin. Even though it's hard for me to speak on, even though it's hard for me to comprehend, I thank God that he is just. Because when I look at things that are broken and messed up and wrong, I want there to be justice. And when I look at the enslaved, and I look at the oppressors, I want them to know that there is justice. That they're not the source of justice. That it's not going to just be, ah, it doesn't matter, do whatever you want. That's a strong rule. But there's true justice in this world, because God hates sin. And because he hates sin, we lead to act two, storm and judgment. Verse 17 says, I am going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. God decides he's going to kill everything in the worldwide flood. Everything will die. God is delivering judgment, but grace is given to one man, Noah. God calls Noah to build a giant boat to save his family and the animals. The ark was around 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, three decks, Roughly the capacity of about 522 railroad cars. So pretty large. I can't imagine building that thing. Now, even now, with power tools, with a crane. I don't even know what I would use a crane for, but I just think I would. I don't even know what I, I can't even begin to think about it. I can't put together IKEA furniture. <laughs> I, I, I can't. I, Gina has to do it all. <laughs> the idea of building an ark is just like, what? 
Some scholars estimate that it took between 70 to 120 years to build. I can't commit to a project that takes more than a day. You know, this is just ridiculous to me. No power tools. What in the world led Noah to build the ark? What kept Noah built going? What kept him going year after year when there was no flood and people mocking him? The answer is found in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He believed God. He knew God, he heard the word of God, and he responded. Faith in God propelled him, and faith in God sustained him. Now Noah's example is convicting and encouraging. Because honestly, how quickly do we give up on things if it isn't working out the way we want it to, or if it's taking too long, right? Noah's example of steadfastness should encourage us to continue to press on. How quickly do we give up on our friend if we, you know, build relationship with our friend, share the gospel one time, they're like, I'm not interested. We're like, oh, okay, you're not interested, and walk away. Right? How quickly do we give up on projects where we want to help and heal and bring wholeness to society, but it's like, it's too hard, the task is too big, and we just give up right away, but we've been doing it for like a day. Oh, we want to end hunger, we want to cure cancer, we want to do all these good things, but we're just like, eh, it's too hard, the task is too big. We want to reach the lost. We want to share the gospel. And God's not asking us to build another ark, but to build the kingdom of Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a law, it is, it is a long and difficult process full of ups and downs. But we're to be moved by faith and holy fear like Noah. We gotta press in. And if it takes 70 years, if it takes 120 years, if it takes your whole life, the move for us is not to build an ark, but to build the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever God's called you in that role. See, here's a cool thing. God called Noah to build an ark, but now he's calling all of us together to build the kingdom of heaven. So you don't have to be the expert at making the, I don't know anything about a boat. Um, <laughs> making the keel, I feel like this is part of a boat, the, the Starboard side, <laughs> the hull, the props. You don't have to make those, you don't have to make all of it. There's each of you can make a different part of it. You can make the part that holds everything. You can make the part that holds the sail. You can make whatever it is that God calls you to make, but He's called you to make it. We're doing it together. And to persevere because you have faith in a God that's called you to it and that will reward you with holy fear. Noah is a powerful example of faith, and that's why we have him in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Genesis 7:11 says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. God's judgment and wrath literally rains down. Everything dies. There is some speculation and differing thoughts on whether or not this flood literally covered every square inch of the world or if it covered the known world of Noah's time. And there are good scholarly arguments for each of those interpretations, but the main point that the author wants you to see is that the flood is a decreation of all that has been made. The language of verse 11 is utterly cataclysmic. It's a picture of the reversal of the creation we saw in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, if you remember how it stressed that God separated the waters from above and from below. 
And here in Genesis 7, 11, now he brings together again the waters above and the waters below. And he brings destruction upon the whole of the earth as these waters join. So Genesis 1, literally waters covered the face of the earth again. And God made the dry ground appear. The flood is a rewind button back to Genesis 1 with waters again covering the earth. This passage is more focused on saying this is a decreation. This is more focused on this idea of God is going back and decreating. The passage is focused more on the sinfulness of people, the faith of Noah, the grace of God, the new covenant God makes, and our ultimate need of a Savior. And in chapter 8 and 9, we see this move into our next act as God of promise. In chapter 8, we see the waters stop and a new world begins to emerge from the cleansing water. We almost see a recreation scene of early Genesis and Noah is playing the role of Adam. Do you see how this is all connected? Right? Too often when we read the Bible, we read it so separately. We read, oh, here's a story of Adam, here's a story of Cain and Abel, here's a story of Noah, here's a story of Babel, here's a story of Abraham. Like, no, this is all connected. Here's now, here's God decreated, he's, his wrath is upon the earth, he decreated, now he's recreating again, and this time Noah is playing the role of Adam. And if you look at this word, chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah. I love that. Now God remembered Noah. Remember, it wasn't written there. there, there wasn't chapter divisions when it was first written. So if you actually look back at the previous verse, the end of chapter 7, it says, The water prevailed on the earth 150 days, but God remembered Noah. The world of Adam was now extinct. Everybody in civilization outside of the family of Noah had been judged and destroyed by the waters of the flood. But God remembered Noah. What a contrast. The old world forgotten, gone forever, but Noah alive, safe in the ark, remembered by Almighty God. God's remembrance of Noah is not like, oh, Noah's still there? Oh, I forgot about him. Now I remember him again. No, it's not an act of memory. This is an act of grace. When God remembers, it's a sign of his faithfulness. The old world is extinct, but Noah is remembered. The great commentator on Genesis says that God remembered Noah means that God took care of them throughout the great flood, and thus he fulfilled his covenant promise of Genesis 6.18. He fulfilled a promise he was taken care of. He was given grace. If you look at verse 17, bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you. Birds and animals and creeping things that creep on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Where have you heard that language before? Right? Back in Genesis. Back in the first chapter. We see this language of original creation being reintroduced. It's as if God's cleansed the world by these waters of judgment, and a new creation is there. Noah, as it was, as a second Adam almost, a new Adam entering into this world where God is cleansed by judgment. But verse 17 isn't the only place where we see this language. If you look at verse 19, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their kinds or by their families. And once again, we're back to the language Genesis 1 there. And then we see the creation ordinance of verse 17, that may be fruitful and multiply. One day Noah noticed two snakes were sunning on the ark after all the animals left with their command to be fruitful and multiply. Noah asked why they weren't off accomplishing their mission. They said they couldn't because they were adders. Anybody? Did you guys get that? <laughs> they couldn't be fruitful and multiply because they were adders. Uh, fire. 
So, to be honest with you guys, earlier this week I looked up Noah dad jokes, and this is where I found these. You're welcome. <laughs> Again, that mandate, that commission from God to inhabit the earth is given in this renewed world, to go be fruitful and multiply. So Noah is like a new Adam. Listen to what Derek Kidner says about this passage. It is still Noah with whom God deals. The whole scheme of salvation has centered on him. His sons are beneficiaries, but not partners until chapter 9. As almost the second Adam, he steps into a virgin world, washed clean by judgment, and the spectacular deliverance in the ark is seen as a mere preliminary to salvation proper, which is the new creation. So Noah has a job of seeing the creation ordinance as originally given God to Adam, reinstituted in a new world, a world which has emerged from this old world that had been submerged in the judgment of God. And here again, we see this principle that in God's work of redemption, he's about restoring original blessings of the creation order in your lives. It's not that God abandons his original design for us in creation and says, ah, I'll give you something second best. No, the original creation blessings that God gave to Adam and Eve is what's intended to be restored in God's redeeming work. Does that make sense? He intends to restore original pristine conditions and blessings of a creation before, uh, that happened before the fall. And that is even seen even in this mandate given to Noah here. Noah is to obey all these original creation ordinances. Guys, that is what Jesus did when he restored um, his miracles, when he performed his miracles. He's showing his power to restore and to redeem and to go back to pre-fall living. God's not saying, oh, I'm done with the plan. Plan A was gone. Adam and Eve failed. It's done. No, God is saying, that's my redemptive plan is to redeem and to bring back to what was right. Do you hear that? So in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 11, the second section of the chapter, we see the confirmation of the original covenant of grace with Noah and his sons. And here we see the gracious promise of the covenant. In verse 8, the covenant is confirmed with Noah and his sons. Uh, here the phrase to establish doesn't mean to start something that has never existed, but it means to make, form, or to confirm what God has already promised. Look at the language. This is my covenant with every living creature with every beast of the earth that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And you see also in verse 13, I set my bow in the cloud, and it'll be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. This covenant which is formed here is a broad covenant, not just to Noah, but also to the earth, to the creatures of the earth. And in verse 11, God pledges himself not to destroy the world again by water. And if you look back at verse, Genesis 8, verses 20 through 22, that in the context of Noah offering a sacrifice, God had said to himself that he would never again destroy the earth by water on account of man's sin. Now God tells that to Noah in this covenant in verse 11. He says, this is my covenant. All flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there be flood to destroy the earth. And here we see the universal design and range of this beautiful covenant provision. Everyone in the world benefits from this covenant. God's provision touches the life of everybody in the world because of his covenant with Noah. God's goodness extends to all of creation. That doesn't contradict God's peculiarity, his specificity of his covenant line. But he's saying that all gets to receive the benefits of this covenant, even though it's specifically given to a line. The covenant is universal. Every living creature is a language. It's permanent over everything, and it's gracious. Then in verses 12 through 17, we see the gracious sign of the covenant that God gives Noah. This is a sign of reassurance given to bolster Noah and our assurance of God's mercy. 
in the context of confirming this covenant, God gives Noah a sign. What's the sign, everybody? Rainbow. He puts it in rainbow. Verse 13, it says this, I'll set my bow in the cloud, it's his bow, and, and it will be a sign for a covenant between me and the earth. And it will come about that when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I'll remember my covenant. It's, this is, okay, this is something very interesting. Language is not Noah, when you see the cloud, when you see the rainbow, you'll remember my covenant. What's it say? That when I see the cloud, I'll remember my covenant. Guys, that language is intentional. That language is designed to reassure Noah that just like the bow is designed to reassure Noah. God, Noah, God knows that Noah's going to look at the bow in the cloud and say, that's the sign of God's promise. But additionally, that Noah's going to say, remember that God said when the bow appear, appears, that he will remember his covenant. Guys, that's putting the onus on God to keep true to the covenant. It's not putting the onus on Noah to remember. It's saying, God, when I look at it, I will remember. As if God needed a reminder. As if God needs like, oh, hey, post it note that say you need to do something. No, he's saying, be assured, Noah. That's the sign that says, I'm remembering. That's so important. Because this is the first of numerous covenant signs that are discussed in the Bible. Covenant signs occur frequently in Scripture. We're going to see a big one with Abraham. What's that one? Yes, good job. Circumcision. And everybody's like, circumcision? That's a weird covenant sign. I didn't pick them. Just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. But it's a covenant sign. And we're going to see covenant signs in the new covenant. Covenant signs are often given by God, but this passage reminds us why they're given. They're given to reassure us of the promises that God makes in the covenant himself. The prime function of a covenant sign is to reassure us. Notice that the bow in the cloud does not bring about blessing. It confirms the reality of the blessing. Do you hear that? Yes, let me say that again. The bow itself doesn't say, oh, there's a bow, I'm going to be blessed. Let's go to the end of it. There's a pot of gold. No. The bow reminds us of the reality that we are already blessed, that we are already people of the covenant. Guys, can I tell you that baptism, it doesn't bring about blessing. Just because you're baptized doesn't mean, oh, I'm blessed automatically. No, baptism reminds us the reality that we are already blessed in Jesus Christ. That is our reality. Does that make sense? When we take the part of the Lord's Supper, there is not a Lord's Supper, all of a sudden you get the Lord's Supper and all of a sudden you're gonna be rich. All of a sudden not every wound that you have is gonna make you healed, no. What it does is it reminds you that we are, our wounds are already healed in Christ Jesus and our future is already secure. Do you see the signs of the covenant? Does that make sense? It reassures us that God himself will remember and keep his faithful promise. Now, the epilogue to all these acts is found in the end of chapter nine in this weird passage where Noah gets drunk and Ham gets cursed. Talk to your small group leaders about that. We'll talk, I'm done. No, just kidding. <laughs> what we see here is after God's covenant promise to Noah being fulfilled and a new covenant, new world given, we just have more of the same. Noah falls. Noah and his, and his offspring sin. And this leads to our true epilogue. You see, you, Adam, as our representative, failed. Noah, who's supposed to be our second Adam, he failed. He was the hope. He might, maybe he was the line. Maybe he was the enmity that was going to crush the serpent's head. But he failed. And what it goes to show is that we need a true and better representative. And he finally came. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Noah. 
Noah's name could mean, if you look at it in the original Hebrew, could mean comfort. And in five, Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, there's a prophecy about him. It says, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And some ways Noah did that, but not completely. He also fell victim to the curse in Genesis 9, like all of his descendants. Genesis 9 happened, and he fell victim to it again. He fell under the curse again. After 40 days, what happens to Noah? He sins. After 40 years in the wilderness, Israel still sins. After 40 days in the desert with Satan, Jesus stands. The true epilogue of the story is that Jesus is a promised descendant of Eve that truly brings comfort, salvation, and renewal. Adam failed, Noah, type of Adam failed, but Jesus is a true and better Adam. He does not fail and he provides salvation. Jesus is the ark that saves in the midst of judgment. The story tells us that God is coming with judgment because justice needs to occur. We need a God of justice. We need judgment upon the wicked. We need judgment for the sin. But God, in his grace and mercy, provides an ark for us even now, and his name is Jesus. And just as it was in Noah's day, the only way for us to do it is to have faith and to believe that he is our salvation and that Jesus substituted himself upon the cross for our sin. He offered himself as our flotation device in the midst of the flood of the wrath of God. And his free gift of life and salvation and intimacy and love is for us as we believe and profess in his name. This story is a story of incredible justice and wrath with unbelievable mercy. And Jesus is our ark. And the invitation and the question as you see this beautiful redemptive plan being unfolded and bared to you is do you believe? Do you accept the free gifts that God has given to you through the work of Jesus Christ? That you can now know that in the fullness of God's wrath that we deserve in the midst of all of our sin and brokenness, that we can be known and loved and called to purpose. We see salvation in Jesus, just as Noah's family saw salvation in the ark. He's the true and better Adam. He did what Moses or Noah tried to do in recreating the earth, but Jesus fully accomplished through the work on the cross. He's now redeeming right now, calling us now to be the ones who starts restoring and redeeming creation the way it's supposed to be. Right now calls us to be the instruments of the world going back the way it was pre-fall as we advance his kingdom. Let's pray.